0: Amen. Good morning, everyone. It is, it is good to be here gathered on the Lord's Day together, worshiping our risen Savior. If you don't know who I am, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here at Hollis Center Church and a member of the preaching team. And today we're back in the book of Acts. We just spent three weeks in a mini-series. We're jumping back into the book of Acts. So we'll be in Acts 16 verses a. 11 through 40. And I've entitled this message Transformative Unity. Transformative Unity. So, how did you meet your best friend? Or, or how did you meet your spouse? Obviously, I'm not looking to poll all of you, I don't want to be here for three hours. But if you're to kind of think back on that origin story, I think, I think many of us would find that our best friend or our spouse, um, they are different than us, right? They are not identical. They are not the same as us. And yet, somehow those two stories became interwoven. You guys had lots of differences, maybe in background, where you were from, what you were interested in, and yet something brought your two stories together, and now you have this history of, well, we've we've been married for X number of years, or we've been friends for this long, and we've traveled together, and we've gone through hardship together, and so the two stories have become interwoven, and we're going to see something very similar today that the gospel produces a transformative unity. The gospel produces a transformative unity. The story that God is drawing us into unifies us and changes us. So just as a recap, we saw this missionary journey in the book of Acts where, where Paul and Barnabas were going and they planted churches and they shared the gospel. And then uh, they had a disagreement. And so Barnabas took Mark and went one way, and Paul took Silas and went another. And at, at one point, as they're going through all of these churches that they had planted, they were supernaturally directed by the Holy Spirit in a dream to head to Macedonia, a new territory. You can see some of this on the map. Their journey in Macedonia. So I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 16. In verse 11, it says So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So notice the we. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he's included in this group of of missionaries that have headed into Macedonia. And so he gives a very detailed account of the places they went, and now they are in Philippi. Philippi was a a fairly prominent city. It was inland. It was on a, a river. And one of the most notable things about Philippi is that Philippi was a very, very, very Romanized city. A lot of the places we've seen so far in the book of Acts uh, have been uh, fairly Greek and they've been very mixed. They've been very diverse places where there were large Jewish populations alongside all these other people from different parts of the Roman Empire. But Philippi, uh, the ancient inscriptions we have from Philippi were in Latin. It's a very, very Roman place and there was not a big Jewish population. Uh, Another reason we know this is in the text there was no synagogue. There was no place of Jewish worship, and so they suppose, okay, there's no synagogue, but there have to be some Jewish women that are probably worshiping down by the river, as was their custom, and they do find a group of Jewish women down by the river. Timothy, who was um, also traveling with them, he probably had special knowledge of this because his mom was, was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And so let's read in verses 14 and 15. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So there's a, a woman here who is not Jewish. She just is a worshiper of the living God. She's trying to seek the living God. And she's a fairly prominent businesswoman. She deals in purple, uh, in purple clothing and in, in purple fibers, which to us, clothing is very cheap here in the modern world. But in those days, clothing was very expensive, and the most expensive clothing possible was dyed purple. So she was probably a very well-off businesswoman. She seems fairly independent because she seems to be the head of her household. There doesn't seem to be a a husband in the picture. And the Lord opens her heart to the gospel. God does a work in her heart to receive the words of Paul and his fellow missionaries. And so the scene starts with them down at the river, talking with these women who are worshiping the living God. And then it ends with Lydia's household being baptized, and then they are enjoying Christian hospitality together in the home. Now, this is where the passage takes a weird turn. In verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So they're walking through Philippi. This is a very pagan place. And there is a slave girl who had a spirit of, of divination. That there was, there was a spirit on her that allowed her to have some insight into the future, to receive some level of, of revelation. In the Greek, it means more literally, a spirit of a python or a python spirit. So those of you who don't like snakes, here's, here's extra reason for you to not like snakes. In Greek mythology, in Greek religion, um, the, the ten, it was so uh, in Greek religion, in Greek mythology, there was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollos and Delphine, right? You had the oracle of Delphine who had these, these visions, would inhale these fumes. Or you have all of this paganism that's behind this. And, and Apollo was thought to be embodied in the form of a snake who inspired his Pythonises, Right, So the, this isn't just being made up. There's a culture behind this. Now, from the biblical perspective, this is a demonic, evil spirit that is empowering this slave girl to be able to, to peek into the future. But from the view of the culture around her, you know, she's, she's inspired as part of our mythology, as part of these gods and goddesses. And, he, and here's Paul's response to this incident. It's, it's really confusing, actually, because you go, well, why is she saying that? Right? Why is she saying, well, these are followers of the Most High God who are, who are telling you the way of salvation. Well, those two phrases she uses are actually very general. They were terms that were used in the Greek culture. When the Greeks and the Romans in the city would have heard Most High God, they would have thought of Zeus. And salvation, well, that was a very general religious term. It was a term that was thrown around and discussed among religious people. What, is, what does salvation even mean? And honestly, we don't, we don't have a lot of insight into why she's doing this. Was she attempting to make their message seem like it was just part of the local paganism? Or maybe was the woman honestly crying out in hope, having seen their message, but simultaneously being tormented by this evil spirit. We don't really know. The text doesn't say. But here's Paul's response in verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out out that very hour that the name of Jesus, the one who has all authority and all power, the evil spirit was gone. But the owners didn't like that starting in verse 19 it says but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone they seized paul and silas dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and when they had brought them to the magistrates they said these men are jews and they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as romans to accept or practice The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods and when they had inflicted many blows upon them they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely having received this order he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks the owners of this slave girl they didn't care that God had done something powerful and miraculous. What they cared about was their pocketbook. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities, and they they instigate chaos, and they do it very easily. It's a very Roman place. The Romans did not like Jews, and they say, hey, these guys are Jews. They're causing trouble. And everyone begins to gang up and beat on them. Like, Like, let's not look over that. These guys would have been hurting publicly beaten by a mob under the authority of the local rulers and then it's not like, okay, you're beaten up, now you can go to the hospital, but rather they're then put in stocks in a dark jail cell. I would consider that the low point of my week if I was them. Think about the pain and yet their response is inspiring. In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That their trust in God and their joy in the Lord was visible to all the rest of people in the prison. That that was their response to their hurt, to their pain, was to sing praises to God. And to pray. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So we see this supernatural rescue. It looks like, all right, it's about to be a jailbreak. Everyone's bonds have been miraculously thrown off. The prison is open. The jail owner, he sees this and he knows, he knows the rules. If you let your prisoners escape, you get executed. And so he decides to take his life in his own hands rather than go through all that process. And yet the jailbreak turns out not really to be a jailbreak that what was going to be a rescue for the prisoners becomes a spiritual rescue for the jailer and his household. In verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? This man's life had just flashed before his eyes. He had seen his business and his livelihood crumble before him. He was ready to kill himself. And yet he stopped. He's seen the power of God. And though he doesn't really know much about theology, he doesn't know really anything about Christianity, he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He wanted what Paul and Silas had. He wanted to be at peace with the God they worshipped. Verse 31 and 32. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house here is the simple call, gospel call is to believe it doesn't give them a long list of things they need to do but the the summary of what it means to follow the living god is to put your trust in jesus christ now now some of us especially those of us who are uh christians might be kind of confused at this whole household dynamic right we see this in both lydia's household and the jailers household two things i think just for us to kind of have running through our heads is that in roman culture the head of the household ought to choose the religion of the household the head of the household chose the worship for the household not just for the children but also for anyone who was working in that household as a slave that was deeply ingrained in their culture that's not something that's an that's an element in our culture Here in our Western culture, we believe that every person should make their own decision. And so this whole dynamic plays out a bit differently nowadays. But also, another thing to note that it's not uncommon that when the gospel comes into a place where it has never been, there are often mass conversions. You see stories of missionaries going into tribes, and they share the gospel. And the day that it clicks and the people understand, sometimes you can have 80 90% of an entire tribe put their trust in Jesus. Versus we live in a post-Christian world. We live in a world where most of the people around us believe that we've tried Christianity, and it didn't work, and we're moving on. We don't see a lot of instances nowadays where entire families put their trust in Jesus at the same time. But it does happen. Now, in the, in the last remainder of the chapter, well, actually first, in, uh, in verse, uh, the, the final verses here that I just skipped over. In verse 32, it says, They, they spoke the word of the Lord to them, and all were in his household. In verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was uh, baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God this section ends the same way the section about Lydia ends this guy goes from being the the persecutor who's thrown these Christians into stocks who then is about to kill himself it goes from this very bleak moment to a moment of Christian hospitality where he's washing the wounds of his prisoners and they're enjoying fellowship together and they are excited about what God is doing. But then if I was to, to give a title to the last section of this chapter, it might be a bit blunt, but I think it's accurate, is the hatred of the local authorities bites them in the butt. That their, their, their speed and their viciousness against paul and silas does not work out in the end and we'll see why it says but when it when it was day the magistrates sent the police saying let those men go and the jailer reported these words to paul saying the magistrates have sent to let you go therefore come out now and go in peace but paul said to them They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported the words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, there is a, there is a historical background behind this that we aren't usually aware of uh, while reading the text. But the people in the story were very aware of. About 100 years before this incident took place, there was a guy named Beres who worked his way up the ladder in the Roman government and was made governor of Sicily. Well, when he became governor of Sicily, he just started robbing everyone pretty much. If he heard that you had wealth, if he heard that you had treasure, he would come, he would take it and he'd say, what are you going to do about it? If you tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. If you protest, I'm going to ruin you. And so he did this for a while. It's historical records. Eventually, there was a man who tried to be a whistleblower. He tried to tell higher-ups of what Varys was doing. And what Varys did is he captured the man. He beat the man and then had him crucified. And as this man was being crucified, as the historical accounts say, as he's being crucified, he continually cried out, I am a Roman citizen because you did not crucify Roman citizens without a trial. That was not something you did. Eventually, Varys was brought to justice. He came to trial in 70 BC. Let's just say, when the jury found out that he had crucified a Roman citizen to try to cover up his own misdeeds, the guy was ruined. He immediately went into exile and was later executed. So this story, would have been in the background, it would have been in the back of the minds of pretty much every Roman politician that you can do all sorts of nasty things to try to work your way up the political ladder and gain power, but you do not mess with Roman citizens. You do not violate their rights. These men had, oh, these are Jews? We can treat them however we want. But they were Roman citizens. And so they come and they apologize because that's what they had to do to save their jobs, save their hides. Paul uses this to his advantage. And they, they want him to leave the city. He goes, okay. And then he takes his sweet time, walks around, visits the new converts. Why? Because he knows they can't do anything. It's really interesting when we put that in its context, in its perspective. The final scene of this passage is one household of God. Lydia, who was someone who was just trying to find the living God in a very pagan place? A well off businesswoman. She is now worshiping the God of Israel alongside a pagan jailer who is now a follower of Jesus in his household. Alongside Paul, who was the religious crazy guy in a sense, who was going around persecuting Christians. And all sorts of other characters, they're all together. One household, worshiping the living God. The gospel produces a transformative unity. So this is the, kind of the illustration I have for the day, which I chose this like a week ago. Uh, it's kind of funny because there's a whole group of people over there, you might notice, who are from Camporia or connected to Camporia. They're like the second generation of Camporia. So those are like my campers. And now they get to serve together, and they've been campers together, and they have been knit together in a sense. But uh, the camp area experience produces a strange unity because you have people who come from all different parts of the state of Maine, different church backgrounds, different personalities. And yet you come together on staff, and you have one goal, right? You're all there for, for the same purpose, right, to create uh, a summer of camp for teens to to know their're creative better and be loved and have fun. and so you're knit together in this one purpose, and then as the as the summer goes on, you kind of build this story together. You have all these experiences, good experiences, bad experiences, trips to the ER, right? You have all of these different things that can happen at camp, and yet you grow together through that process. We don't go to the ER very often, but it does happen. Not as often as church softball. But you have a a, a kind of a hodgepodge group of people that are knit together through the same purpose. What has unified you with others in the past? What has connected you with people who were different than you? Was it shared experiences, shared viewpoints, similar interests? You know, all of us have, have a story that we tell about ourselves. We have a narrative that we have created in our own minds of who we are and where we're going. And some people in our minds fit our story better than others. We have a tendency to seek out people who are just like us. Who are similar to us people who believe the same things that we believe who live the same lifestyle that we live however the gospel's ability to rewrite our stories unifies us the gospel's ability to rewrite our stories unifies us as people we have all sorts of life strategies that we concoct as sinners we live in a broken world We rebel against our creator and his design. And also we live in a world where a lot of junk happens to us. And we're trying to cope with that. We're trying to figure that all out. And so maybe some of us in our Christian experience, in our walk with God, we found ourselves like Lydia. We were seeking. We were hungry to know the living God. Maybe we found ourselves more like the jailer crying out, how can I be saved? Maybe we were at the end of our rope and we bowed the knee to Jesus. Or or maybe after years of intense study, we became convinced of the truth of Christianity. However it was, various different types of people with different backgrounds and different baggages and different experiences the lordship of Christ in the church that he is building unifies us. It draws us into a story that's bigger than us. That's why we gather each, day on the Lord, each week on the Lord's Day. That's why we give to support the ministry. That's why we give our time and our abilities. That's why we visit each other when we're sick or grieving. It's because we've been brought together into a story that's bigger than us. Regardless of where we were, we were moving forward together in Christ. And so from the Christian perspective, this life is not the end game. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are just moving through this life to something greater, a full and complete kingdom where we will have perfect unity and perfect peace. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's a section called the Hall of Faith. And and there's all these different accounts of people in the Bible who had faith in God, who trusted God. And starting in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they... Had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you go back in your own time to Hebrews 10, there's a lot of diversity in that passage there's a lot of different experiences in that passage and yet all of these people rejected the world around them and said no my home is the one that god is preparing for me so in this exile we share a common goal and that's holiness to be set apart fully devoted to our god grounded in who jesus is transformed by his power Please turn with me to First Peter chapter one. Scripture will be on the screen. There are also uh, black hardcover Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that as your own. They're kind of scattered around the perimeter. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse thirteen. It says, "Therefore." Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Note in that passage, it mentions the passions of our former ignorance the time of our exile and that we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. There was a time before we were followers of Jesus that we were in ignorance. We were just following whatever we wanted, whatever we thought was best. But now in Christ, we have a new way. We have a path of holiness where God is changing us And this holiness is not just a list of, hey, do better, guys. You have some new principles to live by. But rather, it is grounded in the full and complete work of Jesus. That because of what Christ has done for us, we can become like him. And if our minds are set on eternity, we will pursue holiness and a genuine love for other Christians. Though we are all different... In Christ, we share the same story, the same Lord, and the same goal. The same story, the same Lord, the same goal. The gospel produces transformative unity. And so I think the call for us, the the application for us today is to look where we lack unity with God's people, where we lack that sincere love and a drive to pursue holiness together, Right? Maybe some of us in this room, we struggle with loving other Christians. We struggle to consider other Christians like family. Now, obviously, in a broken world, there are circumstances where there are people who bear the name of Christ that we do need to separate ourselves from. We do need to create boundaries with. But there may be people who are, who are true followers of Jesus that we are just struggling to love, struggling to consider as part of our household And maybe because we're focused on differences more than what unifies us. And maybe some of us, though we believe in Jesus, are resistant to accepting the Christian way of living. We're resistant to the pursuit of holiness. We're refusing to cease from sexual immorality and other sins. We're refusing to consistently weave the rhythm of gathering with God's people into our lives. Refusing to step beyond an internal walk with God and use our lives to proclaim Christ to others. If that's the case, right? If we're struggling to love the people around us, if we're we're struggling with just the basic principles of following Jesus and seeking to become like him, we need to turn back to the gospel because everything in the Christian life flows from the gospel. We need to remember where we are in the story, and this is how I like to remember it. It's really easy. Four letters, C-F-R-R. Can you say it after me? C-F-R-R. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We believe in a God who is a creator. He made all things. He has a design. And yet that perfect world he created fell. Humanity was tempted. Humanity rebelled. And we now live in a world that is broken. And yet God has offered a solution that Jesus Christ God himself, the son of God, came down and he suffered and died for us. So that we could be forgiven, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And we can follow him and become like him. But that's not all. Often we stop there. Often we stop with redemption. We go, cool, I'm saved from hell. Jesus is awesome. He saved me. Woo-hoo. But, but the end game is total restoration is a world where god makes all things new there no longer is a broken world that's the end game cfrr this is the story that we've been woven into brought into and i think that changes our connection with christians our connection to the church our pursuit of holiness because there's a bigger story that's that's happening And there'll be times when we're tempted to resort to our old ways, those futile ways of our forefathers, the passions of our former ignorance. I experience that every single day, being tempted to to fall back into old patterns that were destroying me. But the reality of the gospel reminds us of our role in a greater story, a story that is greater than our past patterns, and its end goal is perfection that is secured by the work of Jesus the gospel produces a transformative unity. Let's pray.